the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be begin reading uh, with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I must say I prayerfully considered what in the world to say about this. It's just such a uh, a convicting passage, uh, especially if you stop and think about this day and age. It seems that we uh, wind up having uh, living two lives, many of us. We have the one life and the one kind of face or mask we put on on Sunday morning when we come into church and uh, we listen and we say, oh yeah, that's right. And then we go back out and we live in a different world during the week. And it's like we have our church life and we have our real life. And uh, this is one of those areas where Jesus is going to start stepping on toes. And he started stepping on toes back then because there were a lot of people that didn't have it all together yet. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that really did not have it all together. So as we look at this, we need to remember how he began his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I told you as we began this study that he's going to be unpacking uh, his sermon. Every bit of it is cumulative. It all builds. And so as we read these words, we keep in mind the fact that we're approaching these knowing that before we can even begin to comprehend what he's saying now, we need to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. And even on top of that, Jesus is taking this opportunity to help people to understand who needs to be poor in spirit. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees and many of their followers, because they were trying to follow their religious leaders, were living out of just deeds, just, I guess you could call them works. The fact that uh, they uh, had the law and the law said that uh, you shall not murder. So as long as you didn't kill anybody, as we looked at last week, uh, that you were okay with God. And yet the Lord goes and starts paralleling being angry without a cause as being equivalent to murder as being hot-tempered and flying off the handle, as having a murderous heart, more or less. And then today he starts talking about adultery. And uh, the deed of adultery, yes, they agreed that uh, you shouldn't commit adultery, but they really didn't take it far (coughs) enough. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at more than anything else today. Now, if you'll recall, last couple of weeks, we've been looking at worldview and how that people live out of one of two worldviews. Those who have uh, not come out of the world yet usually live in the worldview that I am the center of the universe and the world just matters to me how it affects me. And uh, I, I gave you all the diagram that showed a great big circle, and that's you. And then there are these little bitty circles around it, and that's everybody else in your life. And they only uh, matter in how they affect you or what they can do for you or how uh, they're going to elevate uh, uh, your status or uh, make a difference in your life or uh, maybe uh, being connected with them will give you a, a better identity in life or somehow other people around you only matter in how they connect to you and maybe even how you can use or utilize them. And if you have this worldview that you are the center of your world and it all is about you, then you're going to be angry a lot because you're going to be expecting the world to line up with the way you think it should and ought to be and other people to be the way you think that they should be and the way they ought to be. And then when they're not, you're going to be frustrated with them and you're going to get mad. Well, uh, and like I said, people will get angry at car cars messing up. People get angry at lights, uh, not changing quickly enough to green because they ought to, because you need to get where you want to go. I remember uh, uh, about a, a woman that was caught in, no, it was a guy that was caught in traffic and uh, he was just there. He was just so frustrated. He needed to get going and, and the traffic just wasn't moving and his windows were rolled up and he just started banging on the on the dashboard and yelling and and just uh just throwing a hissy fit there in the car and policemen came up and arrested him and carried him off to jail and he was protesting I said I wasn't doing anything wrong he said we'll see about that buddy and took him in and uh, held him uh, for a while he came out and said well Mr. So-and-so I guess you can go he said well what in the world did you bring me in for he said well you know, I was sitting there in that traffic like everybody else, and I saw how you were acting, and then I saw the uh, Christian symbol on your bumper, and I saw the honk if you love Jesus sticker there on your bumper, and I saw the my boss is a Jewish carpenter sticker there on your bumper, and the way you were acting and what it said on that car, I thought, sure, you must have stolen that car because you sure weren't acting like a Christian. Well, but the thing is, is that uh, what goes on around us is going to be different if we're looking at it from a different point of view. The other point of view, the other worldview to have is a godly, a God-centered point of view. And as I told you, whenever Isaiah was there in the temple, and he saw the Lord. He saw a holy God, a mighty God, high and lifted up, and his train filling the temple. 
all of a sudden he realized that he wasn't right. And not only was he not right, people around him weren't right. And he didn't know what to do about it. And God made a difference. He cleansed him and gave him a brand new start. Whenever the Lord touches you, cleanses you, and gives you that brand new start, and he pours his love out into your heart, you're going to start seeing people and God differently. God's not just super Santa Claus that is supposed to send you down the chute whatever you ask for. Instead, he is a high and holy and yet loving heavenly father. But he is God almighty. As I was uh, preparing for this, I thought of so many many people's attitudes toward God uh, should be shaped by what they learn from the Old Testament. And yet, just as Jesus is trying to uh, get the people to understand from the Old Testament what God was really getting at through the law, we miss out on a lot, like the story of Esther. Uh, I was looking at that uh, recently, and uh, the king had a beautiful wife. He delighted in his wife. And he was having a big, big banquet, and uh, his wife was having a banquet somewhere else. Vashti was. And the king decided that he just wanted to share with everybody what a beautiful wife he had. And so he summoned for her to come into the court, and she wouldn't come. She wouldn't stay in her party. Well, that didn't go over too well, and she wound up losing her, her crown as queen because of that. Esther wound up becoming queen, and Esther winds up standing, knowing that her king, her husband, has the power of life and death over her, where he is sitting as he sits on the throne as king. She comes into the inner court, and she stands humbly at the back. He could have, if he hadn't pointed his scepter toward her, she would have been sentenced to death. But he glances up, and he sees his wife, whom he loves, and he points his scepter toward her and beckons for her to come. There's something that we need to learn from that Old Testament story about how we approach God. We need to remember that he's not just our buddy. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God Almighty. There's so much more from the Old Testament that points to how we should be living today. And, uh, and But just getting back to this passage here, we see Jesus taking this, this the theme of adultery, and he uses it to show people that, yes, there's a deed that's wrong, but there's also a desire that can be wrong. And he uses this to show even those who are dotting I's and crossing T's and legalistically keeping the law that they are still lacking. And so let's look at this. First of all, let's look at the word adultery. (coughs) It's a simple word, and at its root, it means unlawful intercourse with the spouse of someone else. And that's the technical meaning, uh, a physical sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse. But most biblical scholars see it not only as a command uh, not to engage in sexual activity with somebody else's spouse, but see it in a general sense 
because the word is also used in a general way from other sources. In some places, it means to seduce or violate a woman. It's a, then that's very general, a married or an unmarried woman. Other places, it's translated to commit harlotry. And so generally, the word has been used to speak of any kind of illicit intercourse at all. And anything is illicit outside the bond of marriage between a husband, a man and a wife. And so primarily it refers to a sexual relationship that violates a marriage. But it also extends even farther to include any kind of illicit sexual behavior. And we see what our Lord says in verse 28. He says there, anybody who looks on any woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so the woman he speaks of here, he doesn't say whether she's married or not. It's so broad that you see now it's anyone who lusts after any woman has committed adultery in his heart. And so the woman's using the term, the, the Lord is using the term in the broadest possible manner, anybody and any woman. Now, this is a sin that just really waves banners today. Let's face it. If you really start looking at it, it's as if we just completely in our culture today turned our backs on this. I really encourage you read through Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 because it lets you see just how devastating sexual, sexual adultery and uh, fornication can be. Witness David and the results. And look at Shechem, who defiled Dinah or, and uh, was later slaughtered, or Absalom, who defiled others in sexual sin and wound up being hanged in a tree. Proverbs points out that it's the sin for fools. The Bible says that committing sexual sin is like a man embracing fire in his bosom. He said, can a man embrace fire in his bosom and not get his clothes burned? No way. No way. Uh, Hebrews 13, 4 says that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The New Testament, Testament reiterates with finality and firmness this prohibition. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 condemns it. 2 Peter chapter 2 condemns it. Revelation chapter 2 condemns it. The end of the book of Revelation says that fornicators and adulterers won't even enter into God's kingdom. It is a serious, heinous, and vile crime. And Jesus is identifying with the scribes and the Pharisees' view of the deed being an extremely serious and vile thing. Uh, in John chapter 8, we see the Jewish leaders, they caught this woman in the act of adultery. And they said to him in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. We don't see what happened to the man. And this is just it. This also uh, helps you understand that uh, adultery includes more than just the uh, between a man and a married woman. Because uh, you wind up uh, seeing here that uh, the guy got off. The, the, uh, the actual penalty 
for adultery was death by stoning. And uh, if that was carried out the way it should be, there'd be very few repeat offenders. Okay? And so you can tell that uh, it's covering more than just that. Whenever Jesus starts talking later on about uh, divorce, we'll look at that next week, uh, about uh, how uh, uh, to leave your wife for any cause other than fornication. He's obviously not talking about adultery because he wouldn't have to leave her. She'd be killed. So you see that he's, you know, he's talking about more than that. So anyway, so here they have brought this woman before him and they say, she's been caught. What do you say? Remember what he said? He didn't say, well, let's let her off. He didn't say, oh, let's go easy on her. What he said confirmed that the law was right. He said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. It also said that he had stooped down and wrote in the dirt a little bit before he said that. Some people think he was writing out sins that they had committed. Uh, but as they, as he, when he got up from writing in the sand and he looked around, everybody was gone. Just the woman was there just waiting for the first rock to be thrown. He said, woman, don't you have any accusers? And she said, none, Lord. They said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. No one could do that but Jesus. He didn't say what you did is right. He didn't condone adultery. He did have the power to forgive sin. And that he did. And he carried her sin of adultery to the cross with him when he went. He went ahead and he wound up paying the price for it. Not too long after that. But they were right. That's what the law said. And Jesus didn't come to take away from the law. And uh, the law said, if you catch them, stone them. And they saw, and they saw the deed just the way that God saw it. The law of God was very clear. And people, I'm telling you, it hasn't changed. I can remember trying to keep my kids in line on things like this and uh, I remember at different ways, well, I was just thinking about that this morning, different, different times I'd have my, as I would try to explain to my kids that we don't live in the world. We don't live in the culture of today. We live in a kingdom that is eternal. They would say, well, this is the eighties, dad. This is the nineties, dad. And the thing is, it doesn't make any difference what decade it is. It doesn't make any difference what millennium it is. God's kingdom is eternal. God's law is eternal. And his law does not change. Sexual immorality today in any day is just as vile, just as heinous, and just as evil as it was back then. I don't care if you're engaged. I don't care if you're going together. I don't care if you believe that you love each other. I don't care whatever it is, friends with benefits or whatever. If it's apart from the bond of a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, and that act of sexual relationship is a heinous crime. And we need to say that like that in our day because people just don't believe it anymore. But God's law has not changed. That deed is still 
not acceptable in the sight of God. But God doesn't let us get off the hook that easily. Jesus doesn't because, like I said, these people were legalistic. They thought as long as they didn't do that thing, they were okay. But he goes on and he, uh, listen to what he says. Whoever looks on a woman to lust after her. He doesn't say commits adultery. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say whoever looks on a woman to lust after her commits adultery. Instead, he says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, listen to that again. Listen closely. Whoever looks on a woman to, to lust after her. Do you see the intent of the look? He looks on a woman in order to lust after her. If your intent when you look is to lust, then you have committed adultery. The sin has already happened, you see, in the heart before you even looked. The adultery is conceived and thus the look is prompted. Now in Titus 1.15, it says, to the pure All things are pure, but to the one whose heart is defiled, he'll defile everything. He'll look at something beautiful and make it something ugly. That's because his heart is defiled. And that's why there's pornography, people. That's why we have dirty books. That's why we have dirty magazines and dirty movies, dirty music, dirty television shows, dirty jokes, dirty stories, dirty words. That's why we have all this kind of stuff, because the heart of people is in the heart of man is so evil. And man finds things to pander his adulterous heart. Jesus is saying that if you've ever done that, you know the depths of sin. And now then he's starting to step on the scribes and the Pharisees toes, you see, because there's not a one of them that probably could have said, I have never done that. But we can't, I don't want to stop there because you see, Arthur Pink adds something to this. He said, by clear and necessary implication, Christ here also forbade the using of any other of our senses and members to stir up lust. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with desires to be looked at and lusted after or not less, but perhaps more guilty. And he goes on, he says, in this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the majority of the modern misses who deliberately seek to rouse the sexual passions of our young men. And how much greater still is the guilt of their mothers for allowing them to become, and I might add fathers, for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. You see, it goes both ways. But you know what? He's telling us that our problem isn't just action. Our problem is a heart problem. And what he's trying to get across is that there's nothing that we can do to change our heart. We live in an age of cheap grace where people say, oh, all you got to do is just just come to God and ask him to forgive you. And then everything's going to be cool. You know what he's trying to get across to them is that there must be a time when you realize 
how deep and heinous your sin is so that you'll realize that you are poor in spirit. And whenever you realize that you're poor in spirit, then, then you can enter into the kingdom of God. And the only way to enter into that kingdom is to come before him, a mighty and a holy God, realizing that there's nothing that we can do to change our own hearts. We can try and try. I remember uh, just reading through this passage and talking about with a bunch of teenagers about how it said, uh, if you just look on, if you just look on a girl with lust, that's the same as commit adultery. And a 15-year-old went, oh, he knew he was done for, you know. And that's just it. That's the point we should all come to when we all realize that in and of ourselves, we're done for. And there's nothing that we can do to undo it. Our hearts lean that way until we finally say, Lord, I can't handle this but I know you can. You see, cutting off a hand isn't going to change your heart. If you cut off both your hands and both your feet and then were somehow able to poke out both your eyes, you would still have the same problem. It would not change your heart, would it? In fact, St. Anthony spent 35 years in the Egyptian desert trying to escape from just being haunted by lust. Every day he was confronted with the lust in his heart. 35 years away from any women, away from any people, just living like a hermit in the middle of nowhere. And he writes that every day he fought this battle. If he had availed himself to the mercy and the grace and new heart that God offers us, he would never have had to leave town. And this is just it. Our problem isn't a deed problem. Our problem is a heart problem. And whenever you give your heart to him, that's what needs to be cut out. It's our sinful heart. He said he'll take your stony heart and he'll give you a new one. He'll change that world view. So instead of seeing people as an object of lust, you'll see people that are individuals just like you, that are loved by God just like you. And whenever you confess your sin to him and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Just like that woman that was caught in adultery, he gives you a brand new life, a brand new start. And he says, you got it. Go and sin no more. I want to close with a uh, a poem that I found that a uh, uh, John MacArthur uh, pointed this out to me. It's pretty long. But uh, this is part of what it says. Uh, well, let me go I'll back up a little bit, a little background. In the early part of the Civil War, a young woman of 22 years of age died at the commercial hospital in Cincinnati in the dead of winter. She had once possessed, it says, the enviable share of beauty that young women have. She'd been greatly sought after for her charms. Her face was a delight but she became a prostitute. Highly educated and accomplished in manners, she'd spent her young life in shame and died friendless as a broken-hearted outcast of society. Among her personal effects was found in manuscript the poem called Beautiful Snow. 
The poem was written by the girl before she died to describe her life. It was taken to the editor of the National Union and appeared in print the morning after her death. When the poem appeared in the paper, the girl's body had not yet been buried, and the American poet Thomas Buchanan Reed was so impressed by the stirring pathos of the poem that he followed her body to its final resting place. The poem, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, just a part of it. Part of it says, Oh, the snow, the beautiful snow, filling the sky and the heart below. I'm sorry, filling the sky and the earth below. Over the housetops, over the street, over the heads of the people you meet. Dancing, flirting, skimming along, beautiful snow. It can do no wrong. Flying to kiss a fair lady's cheek, clinging to lips in frolicsome freak. Beautiful snow from the heavens above, pure as an angel, gentle as love. Once I was pure as the snow, but I fell, fell like the snowflakes from heaven to hell. Fell to be trampled as filth in the street, fell to be scoffed, to be spat on and beat. Pleading and cursing and dreading to die, selling my soul to whoever would buy. Dealing in shame for a morsel of bread, hating the living and fearing the dead. Merciful God, have I fallen so low, and yet I was once like the beautiful snow. Once I was fair as the beautiful snow, with an eye like its crystal and heart like its glow. Once I was loved for my innocent grace, flattered and sought for the charms of my face. Father, mother, sister, and all, God and myself, I have lost by my fall. The the various wretch that goes shivering by will make a wide scoop, lest I wander too nigh. For all that is on or above me, I know there's nothing as pure as the beautiful snow. How strange it should be that this beautiful snow should fall on a sinner with nowhere to go. How strange it should be when night comes again if the snow and the ice struck my desperate brain. Fainting, freezing, dying alone, too wicked for prayer, too weak for a moan to be heard in the streets of the crazy town, gone mad in the joy of the snow coming down. To lie and to die in my terrible woe with a bed and a shroud of the beautiful snow. Sometime later, someone else added another verse, helpless and frail as the trampled snow. Sinner, despair not, Christ stoopeth low. To rescue the soul that is lost in its sin and to raise it to life and enjoyment again. Groaning, bleeding, dying for thee, the crucified hung made a curse on the tree. His accents of mercy fall soft on thine ear. Is there mercy for me? Will he heal my prayer? O God in the stream that for sinners doth flow, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's pray. O God, we thank you today that even though you convict us through your word, in your mercy, you offer us your grace. You offer us a new life 
you offer us a new heart. Oh God, we pray that you would create in each one of us clean hearts, oh God, and renew right spirits in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.